And has there not been a fall, a fearful fall? The more we see of human nature as it is manifested in the world about us, the easier it is to believe in this great doctrine of original sin. Consider the world as a whole, filled as it is with murders, robberies, drunkenness, wars, broken homes, and crimes of all kinds. A thousand ingenious forms which crime and vice have assumed in the hands of regular practitioners are all tokens telling a fearful tale. A large portion of the human race today, as in all past ages, is left to live and die in the darkness of heathenism, hopelessly astray from God. Modernism and denial of every kind is rampant, even in the church. Even the religious press, so-called, is strongly tinged with unbelief. Observe the general disinclination to pray, or to study the Bible, or to speak of spiritual things. Is not man now, as his progenitor Adam, fleeing from the presence of God, not wanting communion with him, and with enmity in his heart for his Creator? Surely man's nature is radically wrong. The daily newspaper accounts of events, even in such as enlightened land of America, show that man is sinful, lost from God, and actuated by unholy principles. And the only adequate explanation of all this is that the penalty of death, which was threatened on man before the fall, now rests on the human race. We live in a lost world, a world which is left to itself would fester in its corruption from eternity to eternity, a world reeking with iniquity and blasphemy. The effects of the fall are such that man's will in itself tends only downwards to act of sin and folly. As a matter of fact, God does not permit the race to become as corrupt as it naturally would if left to itself. He exercises restraining influences, inciting men to love one another, to be honest, philanthropic, and considerate of each other's welfare. Unless God exercises these influences, wicked men would become worse and worse, overlapping conventions and social barriers, until the very zenith of lawlessness would soon be reached, and the earth would become so utterly corrupt that the elect could not live on it. 5. The Representative Principle It is easy for us to understand how a person may act through a representative. The people of a state act in and through the representatives in the legislature. If a country has a good president or king, all the people share the good results. If a bad president or king, all suffer the consequences. In a very real sense, parents stand representative for, and to a large extent decide, the destinies of their children. If the parents are wise, virtuous, thrifty, the children reap the blessings. But if they are indolent and immoral, the children suffer. In a thousand ways the well-being of individuals is conditioned by the acts of others. So inwrought is this representative principle into our human life. Hence, in the scripture, doctrine that Adam stood as the official head and representative of his people, we have only the application of a principle which we see at work all about us. Dr. Charles Hodge 
has very ably treated this subject in the following section. This representative principle pervades the whole scripture. The imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity is not an isolated fact. It is only an illustration of a general principle which characterizes the dispensations of God from the beginning of the world. God declared himself to Moses as one who visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The curse pronounced on Canaan fell on his posterity. Esau selling his birthright shut out the descendants from the covenant of promise. The children of Moab and Ammon were excluded from the congregation of the Lord forever because their ancestors opposed the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. In the case of Dathan and Abiram, as in that of Achan, their wives and their sons and their little children perished for the sins of their parents. God said to Eli that the iniquity of his house should not be purged with sacrifice and offering forever. To David it was said, The sword shall never depart from thy house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. To the disobedient Gehizi it was said, The leprosy of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. The sin of Jeroboam and of the men of his generation determined the destiny of ten tribes for all time. The imprecation of the Jews when they demanded the crucifixion of Christ, his blood be on us and on our children, still weighs down the scattered people of Israel. This principle runs through the whole scripture. When God entered into covenant with Abraham, it was not for himself only, but also for his posterity. They were bound by all the stipulations of the covenant. They shared its promises and its threatenings. And in hundreds of cases, the penalty of disobedience came upon those who had no personal part in the transgressions. Children suffered equally with adults in the judgments, whether famine, pestilence, or war, which came upon the people for their sins. And the Jews to this day are suffering the penalty of the sins of their fathers for the rejection of him of whom Moses and the prophets spoke. The whole plan of redemption rests on this same principle. Christ is the representative of his people, and on this ground their sins are imputed to him and his righteousness to them. No man who believes the Bible can shut his eyes to the fact that in everywhere recognizes the representative character of parents in that the dispensations of God have from the beginning been founded on the principle that the children bear the iniquities of their parents. This is one of the reasons which infidels assign for rejecting the divine origin of the scriptures, but infidelity furnishes no relief. History is as full of this doctrine as the Bible is. The punishment of the felon involves his family and his disgrace and misery. The spendthrift and drunkard entail poverty and wretchedness upon all connected with them. There is no nation now existing on the face of earth whose condition for weal or woe is not largely determined by the character and conduct of their ancestors. The idea of the transfer of guilt 
or a vicarious punishment lies at the foundation of all the expiatory offerings under the Old Testament and of the great atonement under the new dispensation. To bear sin is, in scriptural language, to bear the penalty of sin. The victim bore the sin of the offender. Hands were imposed upon the head of the animal about to be slaughtered to express the transfer of guilt. The animal must be free from all defect or blemish to make it the more apparent that its blood was shed not for its own deficiencies but for the sin of another. All this was symbolical and typical and this is what the scriptures teach concerning the atonement of Christ. He bore our sins. He was made a curse for us. He suffered the penalty of the law in our stead. All this proceeds on the ground that the sin of one man can be justly, on some adequate ground, imputed to another. The scriptures tell us that by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, Romans 5.19. Through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all sinned, Romans 5.12. Through one trespass the judgment came unto all men, to condemnation, Romans 5.18. It is as if God had said, If sin is to enter, let it enter by one man, so that righteousness also may enter by one man. Adam was made not only the father, but also the representative of the whole human race. If we fully understand the closeness of the relation between him and them, we would fully realize the justice of the transmission of his sin to them. Adam's sin is imputed to his descendants in the same way that Christ's righteousness is imputed to those who believe in him. Adam's descendants are, of course, no more personally guilty of his sin than Christ's redeemed are personally meritorious of his righteousness. Suffering and death are declared to be the consequence of sin, and the reason that all die is that all sin. Now we know that many suffer and die in infancy before they have committed any sin themselves. It follows that either God is unjust in punishing the innocent or that those infants are in some way guilty creatures. And if guilty, how have they sinned? It is impossible to explain it on any other supposition than that they sinned in Adam, 1 Corinthians 15.22, Romans 5.12, and verse 18 and they could not have sinned in him in any other way than by representation. But while we are not personally guilty of Adam's sin, we are nevertheless liable to punishment for it. The guilt of Adam's public sin, says Dr. A. A. Hodge, is by a judicial act of God immediately charged to the account of each and every one of his descendants from the moment he begins to exist and antecedently to any act of his own. Hence, all men come into existence deprived of all those influences of the Holy Spirit upon which their moral and spiritual life depends, and with an antecedent prevailing tendency in their natures to sin, which tendency in them is itself of the nature of sin and worthy of punishment. Human nature since the fall restrains its constitutional faculties of reason conscience and free agency and hence man continues to be a responsible moral agent yet he is spiritually dead and totally averse to and incapable of 
the discharge of any of their duties which spring out of his relation to God and entirely unable to change his own evil dispositions or innate moral tendencies or to dispose himself to such a change or to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in effecting such a change. And to the same general effect, Dr. R. L. Dabney, the outstanding theologian of the Southern Presbyterian Church, says, The explanation presented by the doctrine of imputation is demanded by all except Pelagians and Sosalians. Man's in a spiritually dead and condemned race. See Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 at Passum. He is obviously under a curse for something from the beginning of his life. Witness the native depravity of infants in their inheritance of woe and death. Now either man was tried and fell in Adam or he has been condemned without a trial. He is either under the curse as it rests on him at the beginning of his existence for Adam's guilt or for no guilt at all. Judge which is most honorable to God, a doctrine which, although a profound mystery, represents him as giving man an equitable and most favored probation in his federal head, or that which makes God condemn him untried and even before he exists. 6. The goodness and severity of God. A survey of the fall and its extent is humiliating work. It proves to man that all his claims of goodness are unfounded, and it shows him that his only hope is in the sovereign grace of Almighty God. The graciously restored ability of which the Armenian talks is not consistent with the facts. The scriptures, history, and Christian experience by no means warrant such a favorable view of the natural moral condition of man as the Arminian system teaches. On the contrary, each of these gives us a very gloomy picture of the fearful corruption and universal inclination to evil, which can only be overcome by the intervention of divine grace. The Calvinistic system teaches a far deeper fall into sin and a far more glorious manifestation of redeeming grace. From these depths the Christian is led to despair of himself, to throw himself unconditionally into the arms of God and to lay hold of unmerited grace which alone can save him. We should see God's mercy and also his severity in the spiritual and physical realms. Life is full of hard facts which, unpleasant though they may be, must simply be faced and admitted. Throughout the scriptures, and especially in the words of Christ himself, the final torments of the wicked are described in such ways as to show us that they are indescribably awful. In the Gospel of Matthew alone, see chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, chapter 7, verse 19, chapter 10, verse 28, chapter 11, verses 21 through 24, chapter 13, verses 30, 41, 42, 49, and 50, chapter 18, verses 8 and 9, and 34. Chapter 21, verses 41. Chapter 22, verses 14. Chapter 24, verses 51. Chapter 25, verse 12. And verse 30, and verse 41. And chapter 26, verse 24. Surely a doctrine which receives such emphasis from the lips of Christ himself cannot be passed over in silence, distasteful though it may be 
In the next world, the wicked, which all restraint removed, will go headlong into sin, blasphemy, and cursing God, growing worse and worse as they sink deeper and deeper into the bottomless pit. Endless punishment is the penalty of endless sinning. Furthermore, it is as much the glory of God that he punishes the wicked as he rewards the righteous. Much of the easygoing indifference toward Christianity in our day is due to the failure of Christian ministers to emphasize these doctrines which Christ taught so repeatedly. In the physical realm, we see God's severity in wars, famines, floods, disasters, diseases, sufferings, deaths, and crimes of all kind which come upon the just and the unjust alike. All of these exist in a world which is under the complete control of a God who is infinite in his perfections. Behold then the goodness and severity of God. Romans 11.22 Naturalism does justice to neither of these. Arminianism magnifies the first but neglects the second. Calvinism is the only system which does justice to both. It alone adequately sets forth the facts in regard to the eternal and infinite love of God which caused him to provide redemption for his people even at the great cost of sending his only begotten son to die on the cross and also in regard to the awful abyss which exists between sinful man and the holy God. It is true that God is love, but along with this must be placed the other statement that our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12.29. Any system which omits or underemphasizes either of these truths will be a mutilated system, no matter how plausible it may sound to men. This doctrine of the total inability of man is terribly stern, severe, forbidding. But it is to be remembered that we are not at liberty to develop a new system suited to our liking. We must take the facts as we find them. Such exhibitions of the true state of mankind are, of course, offensive to unregenerate men generally. And many have tried to find out a system of doctrines more palatable to the popular mind. The state of fallen man is such that he readily listens to any theory which makes him even partly independent of God. He wishes to be the master of his fate and the captain of his soul. The lost, ruined, and helpless state of the sinner needs to be constantly set before him, for until he is brought to feel it, he will never seek help, where alone it is to be found. Poor man, truly carnal and sold under sin, not only without power, but without inclination to move toward God. And what is more awful still, an actual rebel, a presumptuous, blasphemous rival of the great Jehovah. This doctrine of total inability or original sin has been treated at some length in order to set forth the fundamental basis upon which the doctrine of predestination rests. This side of the picture is dark, very dark indeed, but its supplement is the glory of God in redemption. Each of these truths must be seen in its true light before the other can be adequately appreciated. 7. Scripture Proof 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, and he cannot know them because they are spiritually judged. Genesis 2.17 but of 
The tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Romans 5.12 Therefore, as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death passed unto all men, for that all sinned. 2 Corinthians 1.9 Yea, we ourselves have the sentence of death within ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raiseth the dead. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you did he make alive when ye were dead through your trespasses and sins, wherein ye once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the powers of the air, of the spirit that now worketh in the sons of disobedience, among whom ye also all once lived in the lust of your flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Ephesians 2.12 Ye were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Jeremiah 13, verse 23 Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Psalm 51, verse 5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. John 3, 3 Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12 As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They have all turned aside, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not so much as one. Job 14, verse 4 Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 for the word of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us who are saved it is the power of God. Acts 13.41 Behold ye despisers, and wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, if one declare it unto you. Proverbs 30.12 There is a generation that is pure in their own eyes, and yet are not washed from their filthiness. John 5.21 For as the Father raiseth the dead and giveth them life, even so the Son also giveth life to whom he will. John 6.53 Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have not life in yourselves. John 8.19 They said therefore unto him, Where is thy Father? Jesus answered, Ye know neither me nor my father if ye knew me ye would know my father also Matthew 11:25 I thank thee O father lord of heaven and earth that thou didst hide these things from the wise and understanding and did reveal them unto babes 2 Corinthians 5:17 If any man is in Christ he is a new creature John 14:16 and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive.
for it beholdeth him not, neither knoweth him. Ye know him, for he abideth with you, and shall be in you. John 3.19 And this is the judgment, that light is come unto the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their works were evil. Chapter 11, page 83 Unconditional Election 1. Statement of the Doctrine 2. Proof from Scripture 3. Proof from Reason 4. Faith and good works are the fruits and proof, not the basis of election. 5. Reprobation 6. Infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism. 7. Many are chosen. 8. A redeemed world or race. 9. Vastness of the redeemed multitude. 10. The world is growing better. 11. Infant salvation. 12. Summary. 1. Statement of the Doctrine. The doctrine of election is to be looked upon as only a particular application of the general doctrine of predestination, or foreordination, as it relates to the salvation of sinners. And since the scriptures are concerned mainly with the redemption of sinners, this part of the doctrine is naturally thrown up into a place of special prominence. It partakes of all the elements of the general doctrine, and since it is the act of an infinite moral person, it is represented as being the eternal, absolute, immutable, effective determination by his will of the objects of his saving operations. And no aspect of this elective choice is more constantly emphasized than that of its absolute sovereignty. The Reformed faith has held to the existence of an eternal divine decree which antecedently to any difference or desert in men themselves separates the human race into two portions and ordains one to everlasting life and the other to everlasting death. So far as this decree relates to men, it designates the counsel of God concerning those who had a supremely favorable chance in Adam to earn salvation but who lost that chance. And as a result of the fall, they are guilty and corrupted. Their motives are wrong, and they cannot work out their own salvation. They have forfeited all claim upon God's mercy, and might justly have been left to suffer the penalty of their disobedience, as all of the fallen angels were left. But instead, the elect members of this race are rescued from this state of guilt and sin, and are brought into a state of blessedness and holiness. The non-elect are simply left in their previous state of ruin and are condemned for their sins. They suffer no unmerited punishment, for God is dealing with them not merely as men, but as sinners. The Westminster Confession states the doctrine thus, By the decree of God for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestined to everlasting life, and others are foreordained to everlasting death. These angels and men, thus predestinated and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. 
Those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere grace and love, without any foresight of faith, or good works, or perseverance in either of them, or any other thing in the creature, as conditions or causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto, whereby they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called into faith in Christ by his Spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. The rest of mankind God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleases, for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures, to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin, to the praise of his glorious justice. It is important that we shall have a clear understanding of this doctrine of divine election, for our views in regard to it determine our views of God, man, the world, and redemption. As Calvin rightly says, we shall never be clearly convinced as we ought to be that our salvation flows from the fountain of God's free mercy till we are acquainted with this eternal election which illustrates the grace of God by this comparison that he adopts not all promiscuously to the hope of salvation but gives to some what he refuses to others. Ignorance of this principle evidently detracts from the divine glory and diminishes real humility. Calvin admits that this doctrine arouses very perplexing questions in the minds of some, for, says he, they consider nothing more unreasonable than that of the common mass of mankind. Some should be predestinated to salvation and others to destruction. The Reformed theologians consistently applied this principle to the actual experience of spiritual phenomena, which they themselves felt and saw in others about them. The divine purpose or predestination alone could explain the distinction between good and evil, between the saint and the sinner. Proof from Scripture The first question which we need to ask ourselves then is, do we find this doctrine taught in the Scriptures? Let us turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where we read, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blemish before him in love, having foreordained us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, we read that golden chain of redemption 
which stretches from eternity that is past to eternity that is to come. For whom he foreknew, he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In whom he foreordained, them he also called. In whom he called, them he also justified. In whom he justified, them he also glorified. Foreknown, foreordained, called, justified, glorified. With always the same people included in each group, and where one of these factors is present, all the others are in principle present with it. Paul has cast the verse in the past tense, because with God the purpose is in principle executed when formed, so certain it is of fulfillment. These five golden links, says Dr. Warfield, are welded together in one unbreakable chain, so that all who are set upon in God's gracious distinguishing view are carried on by His grace, step by step, up to the great consumption of that glorification which realizes the promised conformity to the image of God's own Son. It is election, you see, that does all this, for whom He foreknew, then He also glorified. The Scriptures present election as occurring in past time, irrespective of personal merit, and altogether sovereign, the children being not yet born, neither having done anything good or bad, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said to her, The elder shall serve the younger, even as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Romans 9, verses 11 and 12. Now if the doctrine of election is not true, we may safely challenge any man to tell us what the apostle means by such language. We have pointed illustratively to the sovereign acceptance of Isaac and rejection of Ishmael, and to the choice of Jacob and not of Esau before their birth, and therefore before either had done good or bad. We are explicitly told that in the matter of salvation it is not of him that wills nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy, and that he has mercy on whom he will, and whom he will he hardens. We are pointedly directed to behold in God the potter who makes the vessel, which proceed from his hand each for an end of his appointment, that he may work out his will upon them. It is safe to say that language cannot be chosen better adapted to teach predestination at its height. Even if we were without any other inspired utterances that those quoted from Paul, so clear and unambiguous are those that we should be constrained to admit that the doctrine of election finds a place in Scripture. By looking at the Scripture references in the Confession of Faith, we find that it is abundantly sustained in the Bible. If we admit the inspiration of the Bible, if we admit that the writings of the prophets and apostles were breathed by the Spirit of God and are thus infallible, then what we find there will be sufficient. And thus on the irrefutable testimony of the Scriptures we must acknowledge election or predestination to be an established truth and one which we must receive if we are to possess the whole counsel of God. 
Every Christian must believe in some kind of election, for while the scriptures leave unexplained many things about the doctrine of election, they make very plain the fact that there has been an election. Christ explicitly declared to his disciples, Ye did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that ye should go and bear fruit, John 15:16, by which he made God's choice primarily and man's choice only secondary, and a result of the former. The Arminian, however, in making salvation depend upon man's choice to use or abuse, preferred grace reverses this order and makes man's choice the primary and decisive one. There is no place in the scriptures for an election which is carefully adjusted to the foreseen actions of the creatures. The divine will is never made dependent on the creaturely will for its determinations. Again, the sovereignty of this choice is clearly taught when Paul declares that God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8, and that Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5.6. Here we see that his love was not extended toward us because we were good, but in spite of the fact that we were bad. It is God who chooses the person and causes him to approach unto him, Psalm 65, verse 4. Arminianism takes this choice out of the hands of God and places it in the hands of man. Any system which substitutes a man-made election falls below the scripture. Teaching on this subject. In the darkest days of Israel, apostasy as in every other age, it was this principle of election which made a difference between mankind and kept a remnant secure. Yet, Will I leave me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him? First Kings chapter 19 verse 18 Though seven thousand did not stand by their own strength, it is expressly said that God reserved them to himself, that they might be a remnant. It is for the sake of the elect that God governs the course of all history. Mark 13, verse 20. They are the salt of the earth in the light of the world, and so far, at least, in the world's history, they are the few through whom the many are blessed. God blessed the household of Potiphar for Joseph's sake, and ten righteous people would have saved the city of Sodom. Their election, of course, includes the opportunity of hearing the gospel and receiving the gifts of grace for without these means, the great end of election would not be attained. They are in fact elected to all that is included in the idea of eternal life. Apart from this election of individuals to life, there has been what we may call a national election or a divine predestination of nations and communities to a knowledge of true religion and to the external privileges of the gospel. God undoubtedly does choose some nations to receive much greater spiritual and temporal blessings than others. This form of election has been well illustrated in the Jewish nation, in certain European nations and communities, and in America. The contrast is very striking when we compare these with other nations such as China, Japan, India, etc. Throughout the Old Testament 
it is repeatedly stated that the Jews were a chosen people. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Amos 3.2 He hath not dealt so with any other nation, and as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Psalm 147 verse 20 For thou art a holy people unto Jehovah thy God. Jehovah thy God hath chosen thee to be a people for his own possession. Above all the peoples that are upon the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 It is made equally plain that God found no merit or dignity in the Jews themselves, which moved him to choose them above others. Jehovah did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for ye were the fewest of all peoples. But because Jehovah loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore unto his fathers, hath Jehovah brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. And again, only Jehovah had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even above all peoples. Deuteronomy 10, verse 15. Here it is carefully explained that Israel was honored with the divine choice in contrast with the treatment accorded all the other peoples of the earth that the choice rested solely on the unmerited love of God and that it had no foundation in Israel itself. When Paul was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel in the providence of Asia and was given the vision of a man in Europe calling across the waters, come over to Macedonia and help us, one section of the world was sovereignly excluded from and another section was sovereignly given the privileges of the gospel. Had the divinely directed call been rather from the shores of India, Europe and America might today have been less civilized than the natives of Tibet. It was the sovereign choice of God which brought the gospel to the people of Europe and later to America, while the people of the east and north and south were left in darkness. We can assign no reason, for instance, why it should have been Abraham's seed and not the Egyptians or the Assyrians who were chosen, or why Great Britain and America, which at the time of Christ's appearance on earth were in a state of such complete ignorance, should today possess so largely for themselves and be disseminating so widely to others those most important spiritual privileges the diversities in regard to religious privileges in the different nations is to be ascribed to nothing else than the good pleasure of God. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com. 
by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.